0: By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering... And so it's Please really wonderful to be here, country, um, and it's particularly wonderful to
1: be world. here at Please the Valley Bay 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 Bay. Bay. I was on the website Bay. Bay. yesterday, Bay.
0: And, and, and I saw
2: that you sort of Thank described you so much yourselves as
1: program. a community committed to teaching, modeling, and inspiring that kind of space today. We need those kinds of spaces in the Jewish community of 2019. We need those kind of spaces in the America of 2019. So really thank you for, um, for, uh, for having me here today. Um, so our topic for this afternoon is Can Jews Be Citizens? Jewish Politics from the Enlightenment today to Today. Um, and when I first thought of giving this talk, it was a few years ago, um, and my focus was really on the second part of the title, the bit about Jewish politics from Enlightenment today. I thought that this could be a conversation about competing visions of Jewish politics, going back to something called the Jewish Enlightenment, the Haskalah. This is a movement of Jewish cultural renewal in the 18th and 19th centuries, kind of in Central and Eastern Europe. And that, that first title, uh, that, uh, the Can Jews Be Citizens, that was meant as just a clever hook, right? A provocative question designed to intrigue and entice. Um, I never thought I would be giving this talk. I never thought we would be having this conversation in a world where, um, just about a year and a half ago, a crowd had marched through one of our most venerable public universities chanting, Jews will not replace us. Right? I'm talking here, of course, about what happened in um, 2017 in Charlottesville, uh, Virginia, um, at the University of Virginia, where um, a crowd marched through the university declaring quite publicly that Jews, in fact, cannot be citizens, right? that Jews don't belong in the American body politic. And so what I thought we could do this afternoon is actually begin with the aftermath of that event. And in particular, with the aftermath within the Jewish community of uh, President Trump's remarks after that event about sort of there being fine people on both sides of what happened in Charlottesville. So as some of you know, uh, in the wake of that event and in the wake of the president's remarks, the leaders of three Jewish denominations, the reconstructionist, reforming, conservative movements announced that they were withdrawing from an annual presidential conference call. This is a conference call that had often happened uh, and those three movements decided that in the wake of those comments, it was no longer appropriate to be a part of that conference call. As some of you will remember, this was a a controversial move within the Jewish community. There were segments of the Jewish community that praised this decision to withdraw from that conference call as an act of profound moral courage. There were parts of the Jewish community that lamented this as a kind of failed opportunity for political engagement. Um, I'm not particularly interested in adjudicating those disputes. I'm not interested in thinking together about whether it was right or wrong to withdraw from that call. Instead, what I want to do is think about the aftermath of that call, and in particular, um, the different reasons that were given by different Jewish groups for withdrawing from that call. And in particular, I want to look at some remarks from an interview that happened on NPR in August of 2017 with two rabbis who were involved in deciding to withdraw from that call. Uh, Rabbi Elise Wechterman, who's the executive director of the Reconstructionist Rabbinical Association, and Rabbi Stephen Fox, who's the chief executive of the Central Conference of American Rabbis. So they were both interviewed on NPR about this decision to withdraw from this call. They both fully supported the idea of withdrawing from this call, but they give very different reasons for doing so. And I want to look at the different reasons. And unfortunately, we won't be able to have this on the board now, but I'm just going to bring this up on my computer so that I can read the different reasons to you. So let's begin with Rabbi Wechterman. Uh, Rabbi Wechterman was asked about this decision to withdraw from this conference call, and she gave the following account of why it was important to withdraw from this call. She said that we very much see this as an opportunity to have a sense that the Jewish community of the United States is part and parcel of this country, that the elected leadership of our country cares about us as you would about any American. And that would mean having our back at times of distress, and we don't have that sense at the moment. So Rabbi Wechterman here roots the decision to withdraw from this call in a concern with Jewish communal well-being. What's so disturbing about the events in Charlottesville, Rabbi Wechterman says, and what's so disturbing about the remarks afterwards is that it sends the message that uh, the elected leadership of our country doesn't care about Jews as they would about any American, and they don't have our back at this time of distress. Right? What's so troubling about these events Rabbi Wechterman says, is they suggest a lack of concern with Jewish communal well-being, a lack of concern with Jewish communal survival. And what's necessary, therefore, is political action designed to send the message that Jewish communal well-being matters. So this is Rabbi Wechterman's account. The interview then turned to Rabbi Fox. Um, Rabbi Fox also agreed with the decision to withdraw from the conference call but he gave a different reason for why this withdrawal was necessary. And what Rabbi Fox said, this was the straw that broke the camel's back. What has happened is deeply hurtful, not just to the Jewish community, but to other minority communities, to others in our country, when the president doesn't stand up and take that kind of public moral leadership. So Rabbi Fox is also concerned about Jewish communal well-being, but he roots this decision to withdraw from a conference call not just in a concern with Jewish communal well-being, but with a broad, in a broader concern about American society. What's so troubling about these events, Rabbi Fox says, is that they're deeply hurtful not just to the Jewish community, but to other minority communities, to others in our country. What's so troubling about these events is they send a message about a lack of concern both for the Jewish community and for other minority groups. And then according to Rabbi Fox, what's necessary is political action to protect all of those groups. Political action on behalf not just of Jews, but also of the diverse groups alongside whom Jews live. What's necessary is political action on behalf of American society more generally. What we have in the comments of these rabbis are two competing visions of Jewish politics. These rabbis agree on quite a bit. They agree on the importance of political action. They agree in particular on the importance of Jewish political action, right? They're both claiming to act not just as concerned Americans, but as concerned American Jews, as leaders of American Jewry concerned about what's going on in their society. But alongside that agreement, there's significant disagreement, or at least different visions of what Jewish political action should look like. Rabbi Wechterman focuses on political action on behalf of Jewish communal well-being. Jewish community is threatened, and therefore political action, risky political action, controversial political action, is necessary to secure Jewish communal well-being. Rabbi Fox, by contrast, focused not just on Jewish communal well-being, but on the well-being of society more generally. What's at uh, stake here, what's at risk here, is not just the well-being of the Jewish community, but the well-being of other communities. And political action, therefore, is necessary to secure the well-being of those other groups. So this was an image of what happened in Charlottesville. This is Rabbi Wechterman and her comments. This is Rabbi Fox and his comments. So what we have in these different, uh, what we have in these two claims here are two competing visions of Jewish politics, right? Rabbi Wechterman focuses on a mode of Jewish politics that involves a commitment to Jewish communal well-being. Rabbi Fox focuses on a a mode of Jewish politics focused on a commitment to the well-being of society more generally. Again, there's significant agreement here. And knowing these two rabbis, I suspect that in many ways they would be sympathetic to the other's accounts. Nevertheless, right there are competing visions of Jewish politics here. On one account, Jewish politics is about the production of Jewish political actors who act for Jewish communal well-being. On the other account, Jewish politics is about the production of Jewish political actors who act to secure the well-being of society more generally. Well, what I thought we could do this afternoon is think a little bit about the history of these visions of Jewish politics. And I thought we could do so by looking at two foundational figures in modern Judaism, the German Jewish thinker, Moses Mendelssohn, and the Eastern European philosopher, Nachman Krochmal. Mendelssohn is a name that may be familiar to some of you. He's born in 1729 dies in 1786. He's generally seen as the founder of modern Jewish thought, the first figure to offer a kind of philosophical defense of why Judaism matters in modernity. Uh, He's also the grandfather of the composer Felix Mendelssohn. We'll talk a little bit more about Mendelssohn's life shortly. Uh, The second name, though, Nachman Krachmal, is, I suspect, less familiar to most most of you. He's born in Eastern Europe, in Galicia, in what's now the Ukraine, in 1785, dies in 1840. He's a hugely important figure in Eastern European Jewish intellectual history. He's crucial to Judaism's encounter with the modern study of the Bible, with philosophers like Kant and Hegel. He's an influence on later generations of Eastern European Jews. Nevertheless, um, he's rarely studied today. The last book on him in English is this book here, which appeared almost 30 years ago. And there's still no English translation of his most important work, a book called The Guide of the Perplexed of the Time. In Hebrew, the Moray Nebuchet Hazman. What I want to do is use these two figures, use these two foundational voices, to think a little bit about the history of these visions of Jewish politics, right? This vision that emphasizes a commitment to Jewish communal well-being, and this vision that emphasizes a commitment to the well-being of society more generally. And What I want to suggest is that the tension between these visions, the need to navigate between these visions, represents one of the foundational, decisive questions facing modern Jews and facing modern Jewish politics. A clash between these visions, between these different ways of thinking about Jewish politics is one is crucial to the rise of Jewish modernity. One of modern Jewish philosophy's first episodes, I wanna suggest, is a political debate between East and West. A debate between Krochmal and Mendelssohn about the nature of Jewish politics. Both Krochmal and Mendelssohn take up the question that's animating us this afternoon. They both take up the question of whether Jews can be citizens. In particular, they both take up the question of what Jewish political action should look like. But they give very different answers to that question. And in giving those answers, they anticipate the visions that we encountered earlier today. While Mendelssohn wants to imagine the emergence of Jewish political actors who act on behalf of society more generally. Krochmall wants to imagine the emergence of Jewish political actors who act to secure Jewish communal well-being. I thought we could begin by thinking a little bit together about Mendelssohn, then I thought we could talk a little bit about Krochmall, and then I thought we could kind of ask what this means for us today. What does this mean for Jewish political action in a time of disruption, discord, and disharmony? Does this seem like a reasonable agenda for us today, beginning with Mendelssohn, turning to Krochmall, and then asking what on earth any of this has to do with us today? Okay, excellent. Excellent. I'm gonna walk us through some passages, but I'll pause periodically to sort of see where we are, but please interrupt me at any point. This is us wrestling together with texts. Um, so in a moment we'll turn to Mendelssohn and to Mendelssohn's life. Before I do that though, I wanna make sure we're all on the same page when it comes to just the language we're using and the terms we're using. So as I suspect that some of you know, Jewish life has often been seen as involving a legal system known as halakha or Jewish law, right? This is a legal system traditionally seen as in some sense Coming from God, that's traditionally seen as governing diverse areas of action, right? From diet to business life to prayer to dress, right? Think of kashrut, right? Laws governing traditional Jewish dietary practices. Think of laws governing the recitation of certain prayers. Think of laws governing the enactment of certain values in the business sphere. Now, of course, this legal system, halakha, is a deeply contested one. I suspect that different people in this room have very different relationships to halakha. What's important for us in this conversation today is that both of the thinkers we're going to be encountering, both Mendelssohn and Krachmal, understand halacha, understand Jewish law, in the manner I've just outlined, as a system that in some sense comes from God and that governs diverse areas of action. So can I have a volunteer to read the first passage on the handout? This is from one of Mendelssohn's Hebrew writings. Don't worry about what the text is now. It'll just be a useful way for us to be on the same page, what we mean by halakha. Can I just have a volunteer to read that first passage for us?
3: Okay. The eternal blessed be he gave us the Torah and commandments to awaken us always by means of a particular practices and actions, the cornerstones and foundations of the true faith, He commanded us to perform signs and symbolic reminders regarding those foundations by means of our flesh, our homes, and everything visible and perceptible to us, so that these exalted matters might never depart from our eyes. These are the commandment of circumcision and the commandment to affix a mezuzah to the openings of our homes and courtyards. Moreover, he commanded us to place a sign of tefillin on our head and left arm along with the commandment to place seat on our garments so that we would remember him every time we look upon
1: him. So Mendelssohn thinks that Jewish law comes from God. It comes from, he says, the eternal blessed be he. And he takes Jewish law to govern multiple ways we act. It shapes, he says, everything visible and perceptible to us. And he gives us some examples. He talks about how Jewish law shapes our bodies. He gives the example of circumcision here. He talks about how Jewish law shapes our homes. He gives the examples of putting a mezuzah on the doorpost of homes. He talks about how Jewish law shapes our prayer practices. He uses the example of tefillin, right? Prayer boxes traditionally worn during some prayers. He talks about how Jewish law shapes the clothes we wear. He uh, mentions the practice of wearing tzitzit, fringes on garments throughout the day. And Krachmal understands Jewish law very similarly. He understands this, he says, as a divine comprehensive system that governs an individual's resting and rising in movements and their practice of relating to their fellow man and to their creator. So what's going to be important for us in this conversation is that when we encounter references to Jewish law, we remember how Mendelssohn and Krachmal are understanding this term. They're understanding it as this legal system that comes from God and governs diverse realms of acting. Questions, comments, reactions so far? Okay, let's turn to Mendelssohn now, who really leads a remarkable life. Uh, So Mendelssohn is born in 1729. He's born in kind of rural Germany in Prussia. When he's 14, though, he moves to Berlin. He immediately teaches himself German, Latin, French, and English. And by the, uh, within a few years, he's writing in both German and Hebrew, not just on Jewish topics, but on general philosophical topics. And by the 1760s, he's not just the leading Jewish intellectual of his day, he is one of the leading intellectuals of his day, full stop. He's not just a leading figure in the Jewish Enlightenment, he's a leading figure in the German Enlightenment and in the European Enlightenment. So just to give a few examples, in 1763, the Prussian Royal Academy of Sciences has this prestigious essay contest, uh, Mendelssohn wins first prize, second prize goes to a then unknown young philosopher, this young pitcher of whom some of you may have heard named Immanuel Kant. Mendelssohn came in first. In 1767, Mendelssohn writes a book on the immortality of the soul. That's an international bestseller. It's translated into five languages. It's the kind of book you would have on your bookshelf that you'd never read, but would have there to show everyone who came to Strauss just how educated you were. And when Mendelssohn dies in 1786, he's eulogized across Europe as the martyr to reason, right? The story goes that late one Saturday night after Shabbat ends, Mendelssohn is so eager to get a book defending reason to his publisher. He doesn't wait for the carriage to pick him up. He doesn't wait to put on a coat. Instead, he rushes out on foot, jacketless, and goes to his publisher, and falls ill and dies four days later. Sort of my grandmother's favorite Jewish philosophy story, because it's a story about how you need to bundle up when you go outside, or you'll catch your death of cold. And that's what happened to Mendelssohn. Um, And amazingly, Mendelssohn has this um, kind of academic stardom without ever holding an academic job. As a Jew, he is barred from university appointments, so he earns his living as a silk merchant, and does the philosophy in his spare time. It's sort of really a remarkable figure. So one of the things Mendelssohn is deeply interested in is politics. Um, uh, Jews in Mendelssohn's time are beginning to be more integrated into German society. You heard this in Mendelssohn's life. He's this important figure in European society more generally. You have here this famous portrait of Mendelssohn. That's Mendelssohn here. Standing next to him is one of his closest friends, a non-Jewish playwright named Gotthold Ephraim Lessing. Jews are beginning to share leisure activities with non-Jews, live near non-Jews. At the same time, Jews in this context are not what we would call citizens. They don't have what we would today call civic rights. They have very limited residential rights. They're often prohibited from living in areas or can only have kind of temporary permission to live in particular areas. They're barred from various professions. We heard that in Mendelssohn's own life. He's barred from academic positions. Um, They certainly have nothing like what we would today think of as political rights, right? Any right to uh, to participate in broader political conversations. And and for the first time in Mendelssohn's own context, you begin to get debates about whether this should change whether Jews should in fact become citizens, whether Jews should be granted the same civic rights as their non-Jewish neighbors. And Mendelssohn is deeply involved in these debates and he's famously a powerful voice for Jewish civic inclusion. He urges his neighbors, he says, to unite with us as citizens. He says, treat us as citizens and enlist into the service of the state the many Jewish heads and hands born for the service of the state. So I wanna think about a little known Uh, Mendelssohnian text about politics, and it's a text from one of his Hebrew writings. Mendelssohn writes in both German and Hebrew. No one really reads the Hebrew writings. Part of what I spend a lot of my time doing is reading the Hebrew writings and ask what we learn from turning to those Hebrew writings. And I want to look at um, one of the most interesting Mendelssohnian Hebrew texts. It's a commentary on the Torah he publishes in the early 1780s known as the Beor or the elucidation. And to understand this Mendelssohnian text, we need to know a little bit more about Mendelssohn's thought more generally. So for Mendelssohn, the basic vocation or purpose or task of the human being is to pursue what he calls perfection or flourishing. Um, This is a condition in which we've kind of properly cultivated and harmoniously developed our various capacities, right? Put a little less philosophically, the basic purpose of the human being is to become a well-balanced human being, to develop my intellectual skills alongside my appreciation for the arts, to develop my capacity to feel and desire and yearn alongside my physical skills. Uh, So for Mendelssohn, this is in part a theological claim. He says that this process of self-cultivation is a task that God wants us to pursue. He says uh, this wisest and most benevolent being can't have any intention other than the perfection of his creatures. If God is all-knowing, God will recognize that we should become well-balanced human beings, and if God is benevolent, God will want for us to become well-balanced human beings. If it's good for us to become well-balanced, God will want for us to become well-balanced. Moreover, for Mendelssohn, this claim about self-cultivation and pursuing perfection and flourishing isn't just a theological claim, it's an ethical claim as well. For Mendelssohn, the pursuit of perfection and the promotion of the perfection of others is the central moral imperative. And so an action is going to count as good if it promotes the development of people's capacities, if it promotes the pursuit of perfection. And an action is going to count as evil if it impedes that development, right? So economic pursuits might count as good if we treat them as opportunities to acquire various skills. But they can become evil if we become so fixated on the accumulation of wealth that we start to neglect self-cultivation. Right, so imagine I work for a hedge fund. From Mendelssohn's perspective, this can be good if I use this as an opportunity to refine my intellectual skills and acquire the resources I need to engage in artistic pursuits, to cultivate my body, to help other people develop their capacities right? if I'm giving money to museums and youth sports initiatives and libraries and schools. But this kind of work could count as evil if I become so fixated on the accumulation of wealth that I stop cultivating my mind, I stop cultivating my body, and I just try to acquire as much as possible. So for Mendelssohn, the basic job of the human being is to develop all of our capacities, to become as well-balanced as we could. And this idea is going to be crucial to this text I want to look at, to this Hebrew commentary on the Torah that Mendelssohn publishes. And I, in particular, want to look at the conclusion of his commentary on the book of Exodus. Um, So in this text, Mendelssohn begins by telling us a story. He tells us a story about how societies develop. And he begins by telling us a story about the different activities, the different kind of pursuits that go on in any kind of society, in any political community. First, he says, there are what he calls works of necessity, in Hebrew, agriculture, cooking, kind of activities that are indispensable for our survival. Second, he says, there are works of utility, the production of certain kinds of metal goods, road, road building, activities that, strictly speaking, aren't necessary for our survival. I could survive, probably, in a world without roads, but certainly these activities promote our well-being. And finally, he says, there are works of splendor, aesthetic pursuits, he says, that produce beautiful, luxurious objects and inspire pleasure in our souls, right? Painting, music, the production of fine jewelry. And Mendelssohn uses this way of thinking about society, uses this model of three kinds of activities to um, tell us a story about how societies grow and decline over time. Can I have a volunteer to read the next passage on the handout where it says, initially it's proper for a nation. Thank you.
3: Initially it is proper for a nation to foster and increase only works of necessity. However, when it grows and flourishes in its deeds, it should also pursue works of utility even turn to works of splendor and pleasure in accordance with its condition. While the excess is dangerous and harmful in all of these stages, the excess and breaking through beyond the limit in works of splendor and pleasure rapidly destroy and ruin the political felicity, and many are the fallen whom it has caused to perish. For this gives rise to love of pleasures, leading the body with a forceful desire to acquire as well as the coveting of wealth and luxurious, pleasurable objects. Moreover, this gives birth to a man's jealousy of his fellow and division among the hearts of those who are close, stirring up war among those who inhabit the land, as well as strife and contention between a man and his neighbor who is close to him. Order will there be be disrupted, and the people will be transformed,
1: disorderly, and corrupt. So there's a lot going on here, but we're going to figure out what he's up to here. So Mendelssohn first thinks that society should grow, right? They should encourage more and more of these types of activities. We should start uh, encouraging kind of road building, and we should eventually turn to these aesthetic, beautiful pursuits. But he also worries that as societies grow, they might generate developments that ruin political felicity and leave us corrupt. They might generate developments that uh, kind of disrupt civic order and stop us from pursuing perfection, stop us from developing our capacities. And particularly likely to produce this result, Mendelssohn says, is something he calls an excess, which involves breaking through beyond the limit in one type of work. This is a condition in which one type of activity becomes too widespread. And he's particularly worried here about an excess in works of splendor, which he worries will disrupt societal order and impede the pursuit of self-cultivation, right? It's going to replace a commitment to perfecting our capacities with this forceful desire to acquire, and it's going to replace a situation of, a situation of order with war, strife, and contention. Right? The idea here, I think, that is if a society is devoting excessive resources to the production of these luxurious goods, we might come to view the acquisition of those goods, rather than self-perfection, as the goal most worthy of pursuit. And this might lead us to neglect our own development and become embroiled in conflict with others. Right? I might become so committed to acquiring these beautiful, luxurious goods that I fail to neglect my body and mind. Right And I fail to develop my intellectual and physical capacities. I might become so committed to acquiring these pursuits uh, these goods that I pursue the same items that my neighbor craves, even when doing so leads to strife right so again, we can imagine what this looks like. imagine I live in a society that valorizes the acquisition of the most beautiful car, the most beautiful house, the most beautiful clothing, the most beautiful electronic goods right I might become so committed to acquiring those goods that I sort of neglect myself. I neglect my own development, right? I stopped going to a learning activity on a Monday afternoon at one in the afternoon because I'm so fixated on making as much money as I can. I stopped going to the gym because I'm so fixated on making so much money I making as much money as I can. I might get into conflict with other people. I might see everyone as basically a rival, everyone as a threat, everyone as someone who might acquire money that I would otherwise acquire, or acquire goods that I might otherwise acquire. And I might start feeling hostility towards others. I might start trying to harm others. This is going to lead to a breakdown in my own development and in civic order. And so Mendelssohn has to ask, how could we prevent this development? How could we prevent the rise of this excess? How could we prevent the rise of this society-wide immoderation? This is where he goes in the next passage. Could I have a volunteer through the next passage where it says, the rule is that in matters such as these. Thank you.
3: The rule is that in matters such as these, which properly change in accordance with time and events, the more correct approach to being on guard against the trap is as the sages, may their memories be for a blessing, have said. May all your deeds be for the sake of heaven. For by means of this, the person will always set it upon his heart to distinguish between the good and the evil. Blessed is he and blessed is his great name, who has distinguished us from the peoples and given us to a true Torah, good decrees, and upright laws, in order that love and reverence for him might
1: be upon our countenance at all times. So Mendelssohn is concerned here with a situation, or he wants to imagine a situation in which all our deeds are for the sake of heaven. All our deeds are for the sake of heaven. A situation in which we're constantly oriented to, constantly thinking about God. Elsewhere in this passage in a line I didn't give you, he says this is a situation where we remember the eternal in all of our deeds and direct all of our thoughts to the height, right? This is a situation where we're constantly thinking about God. And Mendelssohn then makes a few claims about this kind of situation, about the situation where we're constantly reflecting on the deity. First of all, he says, uh, by means of this, by means of this reflection on God, the person will always set it upon his heart to distinguish between the good and the evil. So this is language Mendelssohn uses throughout his writings to talk about a situation in which we're engaged in ethical assessment, in which we're assessing the goodness of our actions. We're asking whether whether our actions are good because they promote the development of our capacities, or whether they're evil because they impede the development of our capacities. So when Mendelssohn says that by means of this reflection on God, the person will always set it upon his heart to distinguish between the good and the evil, he means that this frequent reflection on God will be ethically significant. It will lead us to assess the goodness of our actions. I think this makes sense given what we've already heard about Mendelssohn. Remember for Mendelssohn, self-cultivation, right, the pursuit of perfection, the pursuit of flourishing, becoming a well-balanced human being, that's something God wants us to do. So if I'm constantly reflecting on God, I'm going to realize that God wants me to develop my capacities. I'm going to realize that God wants me to become more perfect. I'm going to ask whether my actions meet this standard. I'm going to ask whether I'm behaving, whether other people are behaving in ways that promote this pursuit or get in the way of this pursuit, right? If I'm thinking about a God concerned with the well-being of human beings, I'm going to start asking whether my own actions and the actions of those around me promote the well-being of human beings. So, in this text, he's writing it in Hebrew, and he's very much writing to a Jewish readership. The language he uses, the, in, in the sense, literally the Hebrew he uses, is a Hebrew that would only be accessible to someone with some background in, let's say, medieval philosophical and interpretive Hebrew. And even the script in which he writes it is significant here. So, um, some of you may know um, there's the kind of standard Hebrew script with which many of us are familiar, but then there's another variation on the script, sometimes called Rashi script. That 's used in traditional Jewish sources for commentary it 's similar enough to regular Hebrew that you knowing one will help you know the other. but knowing regular Hebrew script doesn't teach you how to read Rashi script. Mendelssohn writes this publishes this in Rashi script so this is Texts written, this is a, a, a text written for a Jewish readership and for a fairly elite Jewish readership, readership. This is not for the Jew on the street. This is for a Jew who has a certain kind of Hebrew capacity. And one of the things we're going to have to ask ourselves as we move forward in this text is what is Mendelssohn trying to accomplish? What is Mendelssohn trying to accomplish writing this kind of text for that kind of group? Why does he think that it's important for him to tell a traditional Jewish readership? In the late 18th century, that reflection on God leads to ethical reflection. And in a moment, we're going to see he's going to want to say it doesn't just lead to ethical reflection, it leads to socio-political reflection. It leads us to become committed social activists and social critics. And again, we're going to have to ask the question, why? What's at stake for Mendelssohn in trying to tell a very traditionalist readership that that's something they should be invested in? That's probably a much longer answer than you were looking for, but that's something like what's going on here. Yeah. Please. That, but I, I just keep thinking about his relationship with his
3: son, and is that part of his? The son is very um, active in commercial life, and yeah. not relating in this way.
2: Yeah.
1: So part of what's going on with Mendelssohn, Mendelssohn him, so there's there's a lot going on there. Um, I'll say more about that a little later. But right now, what we can already see is right. Part of what you're seeing here is Mendelssohn is deeply interested in economic life here. Right? right? Mendelssohn wants to tell a story about society where society is not just people debating abstract philosophical questions and not just people thinking deep thoughts. It's people involved in all of these kinds of works. Necessity, utility, um, splendor. It's people being business people. Mendelssohn himself is a business person. I mentioned earlier, he can't have an academic job. Um, uh, there's one brief moment where it sounds like one duke is going to hire him to run his personal library. And you can, hear, you can read in Mendelssohn's letters how excited he is at that point. He can finally stop being a silk merchant and sit around books all day, and then it falls through. And you can read in his letters how heartbroken he was. But Mendelssohn was a silk and a very successful silk merchant. Um, and so Mendelssohn himself is deeply invested in economic life. And part of what seems to be going on here is Mendelssohn has a very holistic view of the human being. Human beings are political creatures, religious creatures, economic creatures. They're intellectual creatures, they're emotional creatures, they're aesthetic creatures. Mendelssohn has a kind of radically robust view of the diverse areas of activity in which human beings participate. And this may go back to part of what we're, this question of, of, of audience, right? One thing we might think Mendelssohn is doing here is Mendelssohn is trying to get a certain kind of readership to be invested in a certain way of living their lives. In a certain way of being invested in political life, aesthetic life, we're going to see that as the text moves on.
0: Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybatmedrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning.
1: So so far, we have Mendelssohn saying that reflection on God is ethically significant. But Mendelssohn goes further, though. He doesn't say that this reflection on God is just ethically significant. He says that it's a way of being on guard against the trap in matters such as these. So the kind of trap, the kind of danger, the kind of peril Mendelssohn has been talking about is this excess, this condition in which one type of activity becomes too widespread, this kind of development where society's works are imbalanced with one another, and this disrupts civic order and stops us from pursuing perfection. So when Mendelssohn says that reflection on God is a way of being on guard against that trap, he's saying that reflection on God is a way of addressing this problem of an excess. Uh, Reflection on God is socio-politically relevant. It's gonna gonna somehow address the emergence of this society-wide moderation that threatens civic harmony and impedes the development of our faculties. Again, I think we can understand what Mendelssohn means here. Right? If reflection on God is going to lead me to become concerned with the goodness of actions, right? if reflecting on God is going to lead me to ask whether actions promote the pursuit of perfection and promote the pursuit of flourishing and promote the, uh, promote the development of our capacities, then reflection on God is going to make me attentive to any obstacles to those goals. It's going to make me attentive to any obstacles to the development of our faculties. And presumably, it's going to make me then attentive to the particular obstacle we've just been discussing, this corrupting and destabilizing excess. Right, if I'm frequently reflecting on a god who wants actions to promote the well-being of human beings, I'm going to be motivated to ask whether the activities I see in my society really do promote the well-being of human beings. I'm gonna be on the lookout for this kind of corrupting and destabilizing excess. I'm gonna assess the prevalence of various works. I'm gonna kind of determine whether any one kind of activity has become too widespread, and I'm gonna take action to address that threat. Right, So I might recognize in a situation of economic inequality, right, dire poverty among some people, extravagant luxury among others, I might see there a neglect of basic needs in favor of aesthetic pursuits. And I might try to address this excess in works of splendor. Right? I might recognize in a situation of exclusively economic prosperity, right, a situation where commerce is flourishing, business is flourishing, but the arts are struggling to survive. I might see there a neglect in works of splendor, an excess in works of necessity and works of utility. And I might try to encourage new kind of artistic pursuits so people can develop their artistic and aesthetic capacities. Right? Reflection on God is going to be socio-politically relevant. It's going to lead me to be so concerned with the well-being of human beings. It's going to lead me to be so concerned with the well-being of human beings that God cares about then I'm going to be assessing the activities going on in my society and asking whether those activities actually promote the well-being of human beings. So reflection on God is ethically significant. It's sociopolitically significant. And finally, Mendelssohn says, it arises also from adherence to Jewish law. This reflection on God, this sociopolitically relevant reflection on God arises from adherence to Jewish law. The key here is the final lines in this Mendelssohnian passage that you read for us. He says, God has given to us a true Torah, good decrees, and upright laws, in order that love and reverence for him might be upon our countenance at all times. So Mendelssohn is making some claim here about Judaism's decrees and laws, about halakha, about Jewish law. And it might sound like this phrase is a, very, is a kind of formulaic one that Kind of Mendelssohn borrows from somewhere else it has the feeling of kind of the end of a prayer here we might think that this isn't really some significant Mendelssohnian claim it's just a phrase he gets from earlier sources that would be wrong that would be wrong neither I nor anyone else has found any precedent for these Mendelssohnian lines in any earlier text the individual phrases come from some earlier text but this um, combination of phrases is Mendelssohn's own composition this is a distinctively Mendelsonian claim about Judaism's decrees and laws. And in particular, it's a claim that Jewish law promotes reflection on God. He says that Jewish law places love and reverence for God upon our countenance. And this is Mendelssohn's language for reflection on God. Again and again throughout his writings, he says, when I talk about love and reverence for God, I'm talking about thinking about God. I'm talking about the feelings we feel when we contemplate the deity. He's borrowing this language from some medieval sources here. So Mendelssohn is saying that adherence to Jewish law promotes reflection on God. And again, I think we can understand what he means here. If Jewish law is understood as a system that comes from God, then acting in accordance with that system might lead me to think about that divine lawgiver. Right, if I'm constantly behaving in ways that I take to be divinely commanded, if I'm eating, dressing, praying, conducting business affairs in ways that I take to be divinely ordained, I might find myself thinking about the God doing that ordaining. Right, so Mendelssohn is saying here that this um, reflection on God that he's just described as socially and politically relevant emerges from, is generated by, is caused by, adherence to Jewish law. He's given us this long, elaborate argument to say that reflection on God matters politically, and now he's saying it also comes from following Jewish law. Halakha, Jewish law, Mendelssohn's saying, is socio-politically relevant. Jewish law leads to reflection on God, and that reflection on God is going to matter societally. It's gonna lead us to be so concerned with the well-being of human beings, that we can't help but ask whether our society is promoting that well-being, and we're gonna take action to promote that well-being when society is found to be at fault. We're gonna be assessing the prevalence of various activities and taking action to correct any harmful state of affairs. Adherence to Jewish law is gonna lead me to be attentive to that perilous economic inequality that I talked about earlier. It's gonna lead me to be attentive to a neglect of the arts. Jewish law is gonna produce engaged, committed citizens. Individuals committed to the well-being of society. Jewish law is going to produce social critics and social activists, people who are deeply attentive to their society's needs. And it's important to understand just how wide-ranging of an argument Mendelssohn is presenting here. He doesn't just say that Jewish law generates this kind of reflection on God in some contexts. He says that it places love and reverence for God upon our countenance at all times in all historical contexts. And that means it's going to generate reflection on God even in Mendelssohn's context, in a context where Jews and non-Jews are becoming increasingly integrated, when Jews and non-Jews are living alongside one another. In other words, Jewish law is going to generate reflection on God. It's going to inculcate this commitment to society as a whole, even when Jews are living in an internally diverse, largely non-Jewish society. Jewish law is going to produce Jewish political actors committed to the well-being of society as a whole. Jewish law is going to lead people to be so attentive to God that they can't help but be attentive to the well-being of the human beings about whom God cares, and that's going to lead to politically committed, socially attentive actors. Jewish law inculcates, produces a commitment to the well-being of society as a whole. This seems to be Mendelssohn's claim here. In a moment, we'll turn to how this claim is taken up and also implicitly criticized by our second figure, Nachman Krakma. Let me pause to see if there are any reactions or questions so far. Yes.
3: So I'm I'm stuck on this issue of his having written for some kind of elitist group. Mm -hmm. And so how, if if these people are not leaders of the Jewish community, then he's talking to himself Mm. or to a very small group of people who are not necessarily influential.
1: So this is the challenge that Mendelssohn faces. Right? The challenge that Mendelssohn faces is he wants to make a case here that immersion in Jewish life, right, following Jewish law, produces engaged Jewish political actors. The problem is that the mere fact that he thinks he has to make that case suggests that he doesn't think the Jewish community of his day already agrees. Right? If Mendelssohn already thought that all the Jews of his day uh, follow, uh, agreed fully with the idea that we should be engaged actors, there'd be no reason to write this text. Right? He only has to write this text if people don't agree with him. So part of what seems to be animating Mendelssohn here is a worry that the Jews of his day don't actually care about civic life writ large. Just as society as a whole is largely excluding Jews from civic life, so too he's worried are Jews largely uh, um, um, excluding themselves. Jews aren't already committed to, invested in the idea that the well-being of society as a whole matters. So one way to read what Mendelssohn is doing here is he's trying to figure out what are the pressure points In the Jewish community of his day, to kind of inculcate more concern with civic life. And part of his thinking seems to be if I can get the traditionalist intellectual leadership on my side, I've won half the battle already. If I can get the um, kind of important figures in rabbinic academies, the people to whom communities are turning for guidance, if I can get them to give their seal of approval to Jewish citizenship, to Jews being involved in civic life that can actually make a real difference. Because then non-Jewish civic life isn't gonna be seen as this foreign thing that takes me away from studying Torah or following halakha. It's gonna be seen as part and parcel of that. But there's a real sacrifice as well. In the end, Mendelssohn, it's a top-down approach on Mendelssohn's account. I'm gonna begin with the intellectual leadership and produce a grassroots citizenship that way. He has other ways of trying to reach The more grassroots. So, another thing he does in this text um, in the Biur, so, this is the commentary. He also has a German translation of the Torah as part of this. There he seems to be getting more to, let's say, less involved Jews who are learning more German. And so he's producing a text that's supposed to matter for everyone. The intellectual elite can read the Hebrew commentary. The people who maybe have better German than Hebrew can read the German. Maybe then the intellectual elite care a little bit more about German life. The the others care a little bit more about Hebrew. It's a kind of complicated dynamic. But you're right, Mendelssohn is making a tough choice here. He thinks civic life matters, and he thinks his fellow Jews just don't care. He's got to figure out, how do I change that? How do I produce engaged citizens from a community that isn't interested in producing engaged citizens? I think it's a challenge in our own life as well. And we're going to come back at the end about how Mendelssohn and I think also our next figure, Krochmal, are going to resonate with us today. So let's turn to Krochmal now. And let's turn to how he takes up and criticizes this Mendelssohnian vision. So Krochmal, I, I, I mentioned, is born in 1785 in Eastern Europe, in Galicia, in what's now Ukraine. Uh, hugely important Eastern European Jewish philosopher. And in some ways, his life is similar to Mendelssohn's. So, like Mendelssohn, Krachmal has almost no formal philosophical training. He teaches himself German by reading newspapers. He then does the next natural thing and picks up the philosophers Kant and Hegel. And he then teaches himself French, Latin, Arabic, and a little bit of Syriac, you know, like all of us. Um, also, like Mendelssohn, Krachmal never has any academic position. He basically earns a living as a, uh, a Jewish communal official and as a business person. So he, um, he works as a local Jewish communal official. That means he works with non-Jewish governmental authorities on issues like tax collection and Jewish military service. And he runs just a deeply unsuccessful liquor franchise. I mean, it's, just, it's, a, it's a disaster. Um, So in some ways, he's like Mendelssohn, although Mendelssohn was actually a very successful silk merchant. But in other ways, he's very much unlike Mendelssohn. So while Mendelssohn is well-known both among the Jews and the non-Jews of his day, Krochmal is really only known among his contemporary Jews. He has very little interaction with non-Jewish intellectuals. And whereas Mendelssohn writes quite a bit in his life, Krochmal doesn't, and in fact, his most important text, this book, The Guide of the Perplexed of the Time, in Hebrew, the Morey Nevo is unfinished when he dies in 1840, and it's only published 11 years later, in 1851. So Krochmal is this other interesting figure, and it's this text that is unfinished when he dies, The Guide of the Perplexed of the Time, that I want to take up today. Can I get a volunteer to read the next passage where it says, The Lord may he be exalted? And this is from Crockwell. Again, it's gonna be Crockmall writes in a deeply convoluted way, but we're gonna figure it out together. Can I get a volunteer to read this next passage where it says, The Lord may he be exalted?
2: The Lord may he be exalted. Always known to it. And thus among us, the children of Israel, this was our principle: that we always cleave to the Lord the totality and truth of
1: all spiritual manifestations. Okay, again, there's a lot going on here. So let's begin with this claim that Krachmal makes that Jews know the absolute spiritual and see God as the totality and truth of all spiritual manifestations. So Krachmal is here invoking one of his key concepts, this concept of the spiritual. In Hebrew, the ruchani. This basically for Krachmal refers to a kind of dimension of existence that involves intellectual activity, and is manifest with particular clarity in human culture. Kind of put a little less technically, the spiritual basically refers to intellectual and cultural life. So Krochma elsewhere talks about how a nation's spiritual inheritances are its linguistic concepts, its laws, its ethical teachings, and its book of sciences. The spiritual is basically a a nation's cultural life, its cultural inheritance. Everything from art, to ethics, to science, to language, to uh, prayer and clothing, to poetry. This is the spiritual for Krochmal, basically kind of cultural life. And one of Krochmal's recurring claims is that Jews are distinguished by their view of God as the absolute or universal spiritual, as the totality and truth of all spiritual manifestations. What Jews see as divine, Krochmal says, is the full range of cultural activities. Other nations might worship a god of war or a god of beauty and thus elevate one area of the spiritual over all others. Right? If I worship a god of war, what I'm really saying is war is the most important aspect of cultural life. If I worship a god of beauty, what I'm really saying is art is the most, aspect of, most important aspect of cultural life. But Jews, Krachmal says, reject that and see God as, in some sense, encompassing, linked to, present in, the full range of cultural activities, from art to ethics to science. Now, he thinks different Jews understand that in different ways. Some Jews see God as creating all of cultural life. Some Jews just see God as identical with cultural life, right? They just use the word God to refer to culture more generally. What's important for us is that um, for Krochmal, Jews have this distinctive view of God. Jews see God as in some sense linked to, encompassing, present in all aspects of cultural life. So this is the first thing Krochmal is invoking here when he talks about God as the absolute spiritual and the totality and truth of all spiritual manifestations. But Krachmal goes further. He doesn't just say that Jews have this distinctive view of God. He links this to Jews' precepts, decrees, and laws. He says that there's some connection between Jews having this distinctive view of God and halakha, the laws of Judaism. And again, I think we can understand what he has in mind here and think back to this definition of halakha with which we've been operating, right? Halakha, we've said for Mendelssohn and Krachmal, is this legal system that comes from God and governs all aspects of life from diet to business to dress. Well, if that's the case, if halakha is seen as a system that comes from God and if it governs diverse areas of activity, then it's presenting God as linked to, present in, and concerned with all areas of activity, right? If I'm acting uh, in ways that I link to God, if I'm eating in ways that are linked to God, if I'm dressing in ways that are linked to God, if I'm present in ways that are linked to God, I'm gonna see God as concerned with all aspects of cultural life. I'm going to reject the idea that God is just a God of war or just a God of art. And I'm going to say that God is a God of everything. God is as present in the food I eat, as in the art I um, uh, view, as in the poetry I recite, as in the prayers I, uh, prayers I, uh, I utter. And so this seems to be Krochmal's second claim here, that this view of God as the absolute spiritual or the universal spiritual arises from adherence to Jewish law. And the final thing Krochmal says in this passage is that halakha doesn't just generate this view of God, it also allows the Jewish nation to survive over time. He says that by observing the laws and their truth, the nation would endure and neither perish nor be lost. Somehow observing Jewish law is going to allow Jews to survive over time. And to see what he means, we need to read the next passage on the handout. This is the last long passage we're going to read together. Can I get a volunteer to read that next passage where Krochmal says, Behold according to the way of the natural order. Behold according
2: to the way of the natural order. Case for all nations whose spiritual is particular. However, in the case of our nation, even though we too succumb to the aforementioned orders of nature in relation to the material and to sensuous external matters, nevertheless, the universal spiritual that is in our midst defends us and rescues us from the (laughs) judgment that falls upon all orders. If we fell, we rose.
1: So according to Krochmal, history typically involves these cyclical processes of growth and decline that leads nations to disappear. So Rome is going to grow, flourish, and then decline. It disappears. Babylonia is going to grow, flourish, and decline, and then it disappears. But something different, Krochmal says, happens with the Jews. Although we too succumb to the aforementioned orders of nature. The universal spiritual that's in our midst rescues us from the judgment that falls upon all mortals. If we fell, we rose and recovered. So Jews are going to also go through these orders of nature. Jews are also going to go through these cyclical processes of growth and decline. But instead of disappearing afterwards, Jews are going to recover because of their relation to the universal spiritual. Jews are going to somehow be able to renew themselves. The Jewish nation is going to be able to renew and rebuild itself after periods of decline because it has this distinctive view of God as the absolute spiritual. So while Rome kind of fades away after decline, the Jewish nation is able to rebuild itself, rebuild flourishing communities after periods of decay. Right? So think of kind of the Jews after the destruction of the first temple and the exile in Babylonia. The Jewish nation doesn't just disappear at that point. Instead, it rebuilds flourishing communities. And according to Krochmol, this is because Jews see God as the absolute spiritual, because Jews see God as encompassing all areas of cultural life. And the idea here seems to be, I think, Krochmal isn't very clear, but the idea here seems to be that if we see God as the totality of cultural life, if we see God as encompassing all areas of cultural activity, we're going to kind of ascribe real importance to that cultural life. We're going to see all of our cultural life, all of our spiritual inheritances as in some sense divine, as mattering as of ultimate importance and we're therefore going to be disposed to rebuild and renew that cultural life even after periods of decline. Right, Krachmal says that Jews would recognize the value of the dear treasure that was in their hands from their fathers and therefore seek to establish and fortify their communities and even give up their lives for the sake of their communities in times of need. Right? Jews are going to be so invested in um, the importance of their cultural inheritance. They're going to see it as divine, that they're going to actually try to rebuild it and rebuild their communal life after periods of hardship. Right? Think of a Jewish community that suffers a sustained campaign of anti-Semitic persecution, but rebuilds itself afterwards. Right? For Krahma, what's going on there is that community is so committed to the importance of its, of its cultural life and its spiritual life that it's going to rebuild itself after decline. It's not going to give in to despair, but it's going to re- rebuild itself. And this, I think, explains what Krachmal means when he says that by observing the laws and their truth, the nation would endure and neither perish nor be lost, right? If Jewish law leads Jews to see God as the absolute spiritual, and if seeing God as the absolute spiritual allows the Jewish nation to survive, then Jewish law is going to secure the existence of the Jewish people. Jewish law is going to lead Jews to be so invested in their cultural life to see it as so divine, as mattering so much that they're going to rebuild and renew that cultural life even after periods of adversity. Right? Halakha for Krachmal matters sociopolitically. It produces Jews who are able to sustain their collective existence over time. So now there are striking similarities between what Krachmal is saying here and what we saw Mendelssohn saying. Both of them imagine these cyclical processes of growth and decline. For Mendelssohn, societies increase their works and then experience excess. For Krachmal, we go through these seasons of uh, growth, flourishing, and decay. Both of them think that halakha provides protection in the midst of these cyclical processes of growth and decline. Mendelssohn, halakha, is a way of guarding against the trap in matters such as these. For Krachmal, halakha allows the Jewish nation to sustain itself over time. Both of them even give similar accounts of how halakha does this. Both of them think halakha does this by directing attention to God. For Mendelssohn, halakha directs attention to this God concerned with the well-being of human beings. And that leads us to become concerned with the well-being of human beings and the well-being of societies. For Krahmal, halakha generates this view of God as the absolute spiritual that disposes us to secure Jewish collective life over time. And maybe most fundamentally, both Mendelssohn and Krachmal are deeply invested in the socio-political relevance of halakha. Mendelssohn thinks halakha secures um, kind of the well-being of nations, the well-being of societies, and their political felicity. Krachmal thinks that halakha allows the Jewish nation to sustain itself, even as all the societies around them are growing and decaying and disappearing. And even though Krochmal doesn't use that explicitly political language of political felicity, in other passages that I've given you an example here, we're not going to read it together, Krochmal is very clear that he understands this in political terms. He juxtaposes this Jewish capacity for spiritual renewal uh, with the way other nations sustain themselves through war and force and things like that. So there are these striking similarities between Mendelssohn and Krochmal here. Um, And I think these similarities are not accidental. Um, I think there's actually ample evidence that Krochmal is actually reading Mendelssohn here and drawing on Mendelssohn. And the key is that weird scheme Mendelssohn used to divide society's works between works of necessity, works of utility, and works of splendor. As near as I can tell, this is a model that that Mendelssohn just invents. Haven't found it in any earlier source at all. As near as I can tell, Mendelssohn comes up with this and it shows up in nearly identical language in Krochmol. Krochmol seems to reproduce this distinctively Mendelsonian language. I've given you some of the texts here. I'll put it on the screen as well. When Krochmol talks about how societies grow, he talks about how works grow from those of necessity alone to the useful and the splendorous. That's Mendelssohn's language of works of utility and splendor and necessity. Krochmal talks about how some societies were advanced by using Mendelssohnian language. He says, ancient Egypt was rich in buildings and in works and crafts of of utility and splendor. Again, he's using that Mendelssohnian language. And Krochmal even echoes specific sentences from Mendelssohn. So Mendelssohn talks about how the excess and breaking through beyond the limit in works of splendor and pleasure, rapidly destroy and ruin the political felicity, for this gives rise to love of pleasures. Krochmal says almost the same thing. A nation eventually perishes and is lost. This is because with the multiplication of splendor and luxuries, love of pleasures also increases. Right, so if Krochmal is constantly echoing Mendelssohn's language, the best way to explain that is Krochmal is reading Mendelssohn. This isn't all just some grand coincidence. Krochmal is reading Mendelssohn. He's discovering in Mendelssohn this account of why Jewish law matters so-politically, and he's using it in his own thoughts. So Krochmal is following Mendelssohn, but he's actually also criticizing Mendelssohn as well. Because think about the details of their claims. Think about this claim that halakha matters socially and politically. For Krachmal, this is a claim that Jewish law confers protection, specifically on the Jewish nation. Halakha leads Jews to have this distinctive view of God that leads the Jews to sustain their own nation, even as the societies around them fall away and disappear. Mendelssohn is making a different claim. His claim about halakha is not a claim that halakha confers um, protection specifically on the Jewish nation. Rather, it's a claim that halakha confers protection on any nation with Jewish inhabitants. It's a claim for Mendelssohn that halakha makes Jews so committed to human well-being that they promote the well-being of any society they inhabit, including an internally diverse society like Mendelssohn's own. So there's a fundamental disagreement between Mendelssohn and Krochmal here. Whereas Mendelssohn imagines Jews addressing these harmful developments in internally diverse societies, Krochmal imagines Jews protecting the Jewish nation in particular. Mendelssohn imagines Jews recognizing these widespread threats that pose dangers. Krochmal imagines Jews acting to secure Jewish communal well-being against the backdrop of those threats. We have two different visions of Jewish politics here. Right? There seems to be a kind of implicit critique of Mendelssohn here. Krochmol is accepting this Mendelssohnian idea that Halakha matters socially and politically, but he's saying Mendelssohn basically got the way in which Jewish law matters completely wrong. Mendelssohn imagines Jewish political actors who act to secure the well-being of society. Krochmol imagines the emergence of Jewish political actors who act to secure the Jewish nation. So where does this leave us today? I want to go back to where we began, which was Charlottesville. So you'll remember when we talked about Charlottesville, and we talked about the decision of some groups to withdraw from an annual presidential conference call, we encountered two competing visions of Jewish politics. One vision said what's crucial is a commitment to Jewish communal well-being. The other vision said what's crucial is a commitment to the well-being of society more generally. Well, if my analysis is right, if my reading of Mendelssohn and Krochmal is right, Uh, This isn't a new, these visions aren't new. These visions actually go back to the earliest moments in Jewish modernity. A clash between these visions is crucial to the emergence of Jewish modernity. One of modern Jewish philosophy's first episodes, earliest episodes, is a debate between East and West, between Krochmal and Mendelssohn, revolving around exactly these issues. Krochmal imagines Jewish political actors who focus on the well-being of the Jewish nation. Mendelssohn imagines Jewish political actors who focus on the well-being of society as a whole. Right? The tension between these visions, the need to navigate these um, visions, is one of the foundational, decisive questions facing modern Jews. So part of what we get out of this is a kind of broader history of, these, of Jewish politics but I think we get something more, and this is, this is, this is where I want to end today. Um, I don't think it's an accident that Krochmal and Mendelssohn resonate with us today. Part of what animates both Krochmal and Mendelssohn is a kind of anti-utopianism, a sense that societies are always at risk, that things can go horribly wrong. Right? Mendelssohn worries that societies face this threat of excess, and he tries to figure out how halakha can help address that threat. Krochmal worries that nations are always growing only to decline, and he tries to figure out how halakha can address that threat. Both Mendelssohn and Krochmal reject the idea that we're always getting better. Both Mendelssohn and Krochmal think that we live in a world, we live in societies that are at risk, that are at peril, and the part of our job is to figure out what we can do, what our religious traditions to do, can do, what our communities can do to address that threat. I think this helps explain why Mendelssohn and Krachmal resonate with us today. Wherever we fall on the political spectrum, I suspect that many of us have had moments where we have this kind of anti-utopian sense, where we have the sense that society's at risk, that something has gone wrong, that things aren't working out. And in those moments, we may find ourselves asking the same kinds of questions that Mendelssohn and Krachmal asked. What can we do? What can Judaism do in those kinds of contexts? We may even find ourselves sometimes pushed in either a Mendelsonian or in a Crochmelian. I'm not sure Krochmelian is a word, but it is now. Or in a Krochmelian direction. We might sometimes find ourselves looking outward and saying our job is to promote the well-being of society as a whole. We might sometimes find ourselves looking inward and saying we need to protect the communities and institutions that are dear to us. Part of what I think Mendelssohn and Krochmal do then is force us to ask a question, challenge us to ask a question that's as relevant in our day as it was in theirs. What are we supposed to do at times of societal peril? What can Judaism do? What can religious communities do at times where society is at risk, at times of social discord and disharmony? I don't know the answer to that question, but I think part of the virtue of looking back to the past is that it can help us wrestle with those questions in the present. Thank you very much for spending some time working through these texts. Thank you. I think we have a little bit of time. Are there any further questions, comments, reactions?
2: Yeah? The difference in the views of these two thinkers had anything to do with the societies in which they existed. For instance, uh, Mendelssohn, even though he was in this in sort of society, in some respects, were very oppressing to Jews, as you mentioned, was best friends with Lessing. And turned out to be almost best friends with Kant would bring students to him and say, this is the philosopher. Uh, And those were two leading figures of the day. They were kind of the pinnacle of the Enlightenment of the European continent. Uh, This other gentleman, who frankly I'd never heard of,
1: yeah, let me just say that by spending about 45 minutes thinking about him today, you may not count as one of the world's leading experts on Krochmal. He is that neglected. So you're not alone in having ever heard of him.
2: Uh existed in a society in which there was none of that. Yeah. You, you related to Jews, period. The uh, yeah. wider society had no admiration for you. They just found you despicable mm-hmm. and so forth. So in the in one case, we have an individual who at least sees the sun starting to rise at the horizon, in the other case, that an individual who exists in the dark in his home.
1: Yeah, I think, right, so so the question here, right, is um, to what extent does this difference have to do with their locations? Absolutely, I'll say more about it in a second. I, just because you mentioned Kant, I have to tell a story right now. So, right, Mendelssohn famously beats Kant in this essay contest in the 1760s. At that point, Kant is this young unknown, no one knows who he is, everyone knows who Mendelssohn is. Eventually Kant becomes this famous philosopher, and, um, and they strike up a really interesting correspondence. Kant famously never leaves his hometown of Königsberg. Mendelssohn does, though, once go on a trip from Berlin to Königsberg, and he decides he's gonna visit Kant. So he shows in, up in Kant's lecture hall. Mendelssohn um, was often referred to in that context as the ugly Jew Mendelssohn. He had a terrible hunchback. He had this, um, he he, he looked like the kind of caricature of a Jew and people would often talk about his ugliness. And so apparently he shows up in Kant's lecture hall and none of the students know who he is and they're all snickering, who's this deformed, ugly Jew at the front of the room? And then Kant walks in and embraces him. And the story goes, a hush fell over the room and the whisper went out it is the Jew Mendelssohn. It is the Jew Mendelssohn. So it's a sort of very interesting dynamic. Um, I think you're absolutely right. I think the, social, the difference in social context matters a great deal. Um, and it matters a great deal, first of all, for the reasons you discussed. right? There is this movement toward Jewish civic integration in Germany that's not there in Eastern Europe. More fundamentally, Jews in, um, in Germany are starting to relate to the state as individuals. Right, so those of us who live in the United States, we relate to the state as individuals, we're citizens. We're not just, I don't relate to the state as a representative of the Jews or a representative of people who live in Colorado. I relate to the United States as an individual. I vote as an individual. That's beginning to happen in Germany. That's not the case in Eastern Europe. Legally, it's beginning to be the case. But as a matter of fact, Jews are still members of Jewish collective bodies in Eastern Europe. Right? And Krochmal is involved in that. He, um, he, um, he's a Jewish communal official. He worked for the state on Jews paying taxes as a group, Jews supplying boys to serve in the army as a group. So it's both this difference in whether Jews can be included and also how Jews can be included. And it's no accident that Krochmal imagines this vision of Jewish collective existence in a society where Jews are a collective, not individuals. But I, I think that's absolutely right. The context here makes, makes a huge difference. I think I saw a hand over here and maybe a hand over there.
2: What would what did, what did he say, if anything, about the possibility that where he was leading was towards an assimilation that, in effect, would undermine the lot.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so Mendelssohn, I think, is aware of that possibility. And I should say it's built into the very structure of his philosophy. Uh, in the way that it's built into the structure of a lot of Jewish philosophy. So the story we get here is halakha matters because it makes us better citizens. right? Halakha matters because it leads us to reflect on God. And once we reflect on God, we're going to be these committed citizens. In principle, that opens up the argument of, well, what if we can get that same goal somewhere else? What if I can learn to reflect on God by going to the theater or reading a good book or meditating or becoming baptized as a a christian right 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 this is and and this is there in other aspects of mendelssohn's thought as well so famously in another book he writes he talks about how the whole purpose of halakha is to allow us to engage in reflection on god and constantly refine our beliefs right we live in a world where it's really important to change what we believe over time there are new developments in science And, right, I can't believe the same thing, I'm speaking as Mendelssohn now, I can't believe the same thing I believed in the 12th century, because I know different things about science today than they knew about science in the 12th century, and so I damn well better have a better way of thinking today. And the advantage of Jewish law is it leads me to think so much about God that I'm going to be able to engage in this project of conceptual revision. So on the one hand, we might say that sounds really nice. We want to be flexible in our beliefs. We don't want to be stuck with 12th century science when we could have 18th century science, even better 21st century science. But the flip side is it again structurally says, okay, if the point of Jewish law is something else, if the point of Jewish law is to be able to reflect on God, there are other ways maybe I could reflect on God. Maybe I could meditate and maybe I could be baptized into Christianity. There are lots of things out there that could allow me to reflect on God. Mendelssohn is aware of this, and he actually devotes a lot of his attention to giving other kinds of arguments for Jewish law in terms of why we should actually think that Jewish law comes from God, why we should think that the ancient rabbis make a claim on us today. But it's in the end, it's a problem that Mendelssohn can't solve. And I would think more generally, this is a recurring problem in Jewish philosophy. In any kind of Jewish philosophy that tries to be both particularistic in saying the practices of Judaism matter and universalistic in terms of saying it matters for some other reason. right? On the one hand, many of us, I think, are dissatisfied with the idea that we just do Judaism for no reason other than Judaism. We want some broader reason. The problem is once you have a broader reason, you in principle open the door to to saying, well, if I can get that, if I can meet that broader need somewhere else, I don't need you to do it. This is one of the reasons why Maimonides was so controversial. Maimonides imagines there being reasons for Jewish law beyond just the following of Jewish law. He imagines it producing a particular kind of society, promoting knowledge of God. And many of his best readers recognized that's really dangerous because we might get those things elsewhere. Um, so I think you're absolutely right. This is a problem that Mendelssohn faces. He's aware of it, he tries to address it, but I don't think it's a problem he can fully get away from. And I think more generally, um, I don't think it's a problem this kind of way of thinking about Judaism can get away from. Earlier today I had an interview with Rav Shmuley about um, is philosophy dangerous in a Jewish context? And this is one of the reasons philosophy is often seen as dangerous in Jewish context. Right? I, I sometimes tell my students, um, there are all these controversies about Jewish philosophy and history, people burning Maimonides books. Some people burned these books because they didn't understand them. Some people burned these books because they understood them really, really well. And that's something that I think is important for us to think about. Well, thank you so much for all of you for thinking together this afternoon. This is great.